Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 482, March 16, 2022, The Rush to Normal with Greg Gonsalves. Let me introduce my guest, Greg Gonsalves. I'm really glad to have him back on COVID calls. He's an expert in policy modeling on infectious disease and substance use, as well as the intersection of public policy and health equity. For more than 30 years, he worked on HIV, AIDS, and other global health issues with several organizations, including the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, the Treatment Action Group, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and the AIDS and Rights Alliance for Southern Africa. He's a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, thanks for making time to come back on COVID calls. Pleased to be here, Scott. So I'd like to start by asking you where things are in terms of what I've been calling the rush to normal and how you see the actions of the administration right now. We just saw that the United States Senate is, maybe they actually did it, um, voting to end mask mandates on public transportation. You can't get the United States Senate to have consensus on anything. I just feel like in so many places I'm looking right now, there's this rush to achieve endemicity, to call things normal, downplay the use of masks. How are you making sense of that? Well, a couple of things. Endemicity is a technical term, right? And it means when sort of um, we're not seeing these enormous spikes like we're seeing in Asia um, that we're starting to see uh, in other places around the globe. Um, it's when sort of the, the, the outbreak of a disease is leveled out and, and you're really in a state of low-level um, infection, but endemicity can be set at high levels and low levels, um, and it can be declared sort of by fiat because endemicity really is about when we sort of decide um, that the state of emergency is over. And in many ways, the United States has um, declared mission accomplished um, and decided with the new CDC guidelines and the new CDC community levels, the sort of utterances from the White House that by and large, we are done with this pandemic. Um, and yes, variants may appear, as President Biden said, that may foil our plans, but in general, we are standing down in many, many different ways. So help me with the cognitive dissonance here that I'm having. We say that we're over, we're done with a pandemic that's having death rates higher than at various points in the pandemic in which the response was more robust. It's hard to not be cynical about that, Greg. Well, it's hard not to be cynical about it, but it's not surprising. Um, you know, John Barry, who wrote, you know, the, the, the magnum opus on the 1918 influenza pandemic, said waves that appeared in 1920, which were just as deadly as um, previous waves, were basically greeted with with nonchalance, um, uh, you know, a little over 100 years ago, that in fact, people had given up on, on masking and all the sort of protections that were being done in the context of the great influenza. Um, and, and sort of um, watched a wave in 1920 wash over the U.S. Um, that was as deadly as once before. Um, Barry talks in his op-ed in the New York Times on this that it happened with influenza uh, in the late 1950s, early 60s. And in the AIDS epidemic in 1996, um, we declared victory um, about on the epidemic. And there was a famous article by Andrew Sullivan in the New York Times saying when plagues end, um, but the plague... Where HIV was not over for the U.S., nor was it over for the rest of the world. But you know, the common um, 
perception, the common view was that uh, it's time to move on. Is this because people have become habituated to, to death? Is it because there's no advocacy for the victims? Is this about just the stress on the healthcare system and some real politique about just we can't spend the money anymore, which would be a judgment call? But I mean, I'm trying to understand how we get to this, this point of what you're describing, which sounds fundamentally like a political decision. It's a political decision, but it's borne by sort of the um, exhaustion of the American populace. Um, you know, not all portions of it. There's some people who are trying to keep their their loved ones safe, trying to keep themselves safe if they're immunocompromised or um, or for some reason they haven't been able to get vaccinated. Um, or they uh, have households with under five children who can't get vaccinated. Um, so there's a generalized exhaustion that um, the Republican Party um, has sort of preyed on for most of the pandemic. But in 2021, um, President Biden promised us a hot fact summer and that, you know, we were going to put um, the, the pandemic behind us and the Delta wave and the Omicron wave don't seem to have dented their idea that, you know, they're going to vaccinate their way out of the pandemic. Even though today our vaccine um, uptake is, is sort of plateaued and, 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 is, and is a pretty low level. So, I mean, it is a political decision, um, but I think it's born out of the fact that people are exhausted and don't want to do this anymore. And to protect ourselves, to treat ourselves um, as it, all in this together, sort of um, runs against human nature in a certain way. Once you feel you're safe, um, the safety of others doesn't matter that much, right? Once you're in the lifeboat, you know, you're not interested in bringing other people on board. Is that because you, so many people have had it now? So many people are vaccinated and they don't think that they're really at risk? I'm, I'm really curious about this lifeboat you know, concept, because a lot of people who are liberals or who have been very cautious through this point, I mean, look at the booster rates. There's obviously a lot of people out there who are like, they're on board to a point and then they're just not willing to go further. Well, you know, I'm double vaxxed and boosted. I assume you are. Um, a lot of people are, are, are vaxxed and done, right? It's like, you know, I've been good all throughout the pandemic. I've been wearing masks, I've been doing this and that, and now people who don't want to get vaccinated, you know, it's their own fault if they get infected, except they, you know, it's a clever um, psychological trick that people play because a lot of people um, have tried to get vaccinated and their immune systems won't um, respond to, to, to the vaccine, they're under five years old, um, yeah. or they have other conditions that, that put them at higher risk. Um, but it seems not to matter in, in the calculus of people who really, you know, go along with the CDC director and the president's remarks that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and that's your own damn fault um, yeah. if you get sick and die, which we know is not true. Uh, I'm in South Korea and we're um, we're at the worst of it, of this whole pandemic. And this is a country where the science bureaucracy has functioned, I think, beautifully um, and where the public doesn't, I mean, this, they fight about a lot of things here, but they don't fight about wearing masks. But I would share with you that, um, you know, Omicron has hit very hard. And I went to a shopping center recently that has had like thermal checks, like vaccine checks at the door, like super serious. It's all gone. And and so it, it's even in South Korea, that exhaustion. We reached it. I don't know how I don't know what to say about it. Nobody's been more, more careful than South Korea. And this is the worst moment of the pandemic. And there's they're stepping down things that were in place just three months ago. You know, this is why, you know, um, this may not 
and is not an American phenomenon. It's not sort of sort of uh, an American um, pathology. It's just that um, expecting people to to sort of rally around each other over the course of several years is really um, actually turned out to be an impossible goal, right? You know, we can minimize deaths, we can minimize infections, minimize suffering um, over the next several months, next several years, um, but it seems like we're willing to accept a sort of level of mass death um, as sort of an acceptable cost, an acceptable price of getting back to normal. Um, until, you know, it hits home, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore to, to a large portion of the globe's population. So I'd like to, the last time we had a chance to visit, um, we talked in detail about your, your background in HIV AIDS science and, and epidemiology and activism. And relatively recently, you've staged some interventions, um, you might say, uh, that seem to call back to that to that time period in how, in, and so I want to ask you about this again, and we talked about it a little bit last time. Are there, you know, what can we learn from, from HIV AIDS activism, for example, to try to disrupt what we've been describing here, this rush to just accept endemicity, which you, as you point out, is a kind of a subjective call anyway. Are there some tactics that we should be thinking about using like right now? Well, one is, um, you need to keep speaking out, right? Besides for me, there, there's there's many, many other people who work in public health and clinical medicine who just were, or just generally concerned about the pandemic who realize um, that going back to normal is, is is a little bit of a mirage. Um, and it's certainly not going to be a mirage for people who have less resources, um, who are at higher vulnerability. Um, and so you need to keep speaking out. You need to keep using your voice and um using your privilege as an uh, American academic or wherever you are, you stand in the sort of uh, global order to just not let it happen uh, uh, silently and without protest and without raising, raising your voice. It's, um, you know, in terms of the marches that ACT UP did or the marches that the Trigon Action Campaign did in South Africa, you know, it's hard to believe we're going to see that kind of um, grassroots mobilization around the pandemic in the year, you know, going into, you know, going towards year three. Um, but that doesn't mean that smaller um, acts of resistance uh, can't happen across the board, across the planet, um, uh, among people who realize, you know, um, what happens to you, what happens to my neighbor, what happens to people all across the planet, far away from me in South Korea matters matters to me. And it's a, it's a stain on our sort of... Um, our character to say that, you know, I'm, I'm vaxxed and done, you know, you're, you know, you're all on your own. I mean, it just, it, there's, there's plenty of people who, who are not willing, are willing to say not in my name. And at this point, you know, part of it is just bearing witness um, and standing side to side with the most vulnerable. I wrote an article in the nation last week about Paul Farmer's death and his concept of accompaniment in which when people are in need, you stay with them to the end until they say it's you know it's time for you to leave and you you keep company with them um, during their worst moments and in a way um, I'm not a physician I'm not a nurse I'm not a healthcare provider but we walk alongside of the people who are going to be left behind here and and do it consciously do it um, um, in support of them rather than sort of um, going back to normal which is the easiest thing to do. I, I'm glad you mentioned that article and and Paul Farmer. Um, 
and who I was going to be a guest on COVID calls actually uh, with with a guest host at the event. And um, maybe we could just linger here for one second. Uh, could you say a little bit about Paul Farmer's impact on your on your work and life? Yeah, and I know Adia Benton too. Um, we just I ran into her at Paul's memorial in um, Boston this weekend. You know, uh, I met Paul in twenty uh, two, in the year two thousand in Durban, um, in South Africa, at the AIDS conference, and he was just hanging out. He was at a big reception at one of the South African research leaders' houses, and Paul was in the corner hanging with the AIDS activists and. Um, I didn't really know who he was, but, um, you know, we, he became very, um, interested in AIDS activism as sort of an adjunct to his own kinds of work, which was much more sort of care centered, you know, accompaniment, um, um, and really felt uh, a kindred spirit with, with AIDS activists who were, were out in the streets, you know, in people's faces, um, where Paul's sort of, um, model of sort of, um, liberation theology was much more sort of based on love. Ours was based on anger. Um, and I think we, we established a comradeship. I don't consider, didn't consider Paul a friend, but he was definitely a comrade. And um, he pulled AIDS activists into the work on uh, multi-drug resistant um, He was um, very interested in bringing AIDS activists to his undergraduate class at Harvard to sort of um, tell the story of, of uh, ACT UP and the AIDS epidemic um, as, a, as a corollary or a, or a adjunct or supplement to the own kinds of narratives that, that um, came out of his own work. Um, and um, personally, he was he was quite kind and generous with me and giving professional advice and stuff like that. So um, what's re- really important is to think of Paul's concept of structural violence and that um, poor health and illness is not just about a microbe or a rogue cancer cell. It's about what we do to each other at a social and economic level and that um, well, public health experts will call them the social determinants of health. Paul said, no, this is a form of violence done unto other people through economic and social policy. Um, and Paul wrote a piece in Noema magazine, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, where he talked about social medicine and the pandemic and said, you know, resignation in the face of the pandemic, he wrote this over a year ago, um, is something that is a luxury of people who don't face the sort of onslaught of structural violence. Um, and that he predicted that there would be a sort of resignation, a, a nihilism, uh, about the pandemic over a year ago, um, because the people who matter, um, the people in power, the people who, whether by um, omission or commission, inflict social violence upon the rest of us, and particularly those who are vulnerable, um, really is a deep feature of this pandemic, as it, as Paul has said, it, it has been an epidemic's past, whether it's been TB or HIV or Ebola. Let me just take a second to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Greg Gonsalves today. Um, I'm wondering what the impact of fear might be as we talk, come back to this question about the rush to normalization. And I'm thinking now about the headlines coming from China and lockdowns and talk now about an Omicron variant. What are you, I'm interested in, in a few things here. One is um, maybe one of the kind of trade secrets, like what what are you watching? Like, where are you getting your your info and data on this? And and what are you seeing? Does it concern you? Well, one is is that um, what we're seeing in South Korea and China, in the UK, um, and other places is that the epidemic is not over. You know, if if we were if two or three weeks ago we could say there is an Omicron lull, um, it's clear that we're seeing uh, explosions in cases across the globe. Um, 
you know, in some places they're heavily vaccinated, we're going to see fewer deaths than we did with previous waves. But remember, the Omicron wave itself, because of the transmissibility of the virus, was incredibly deadly. Over 155,000 people died in three months. Um, you know, a lot of people were exposed to Omicron, so maybe that'll blunt deaths uh, e even more. But the point is, you know, we're seeing cases skyrocket in South Korea, in China, Hong Kong. We're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing it sneak up in, in, in places like Denmark that opened up early. Um, you know, the U.S. has stopped really um, being interested in case counts. Um, so it's hard to tell when we're going to hear the alarm bells go off here. In fact, the CDC has said it's only when hospitalizations start to rise that they're going to worry. But hospitalizations are a lagging indicator. Um, so if we're not interested in testing um, very much, um, maybe wastewater, although it's available in only certain jurisdictions, will give us a clue that 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 uh, a new wave is coming along. Um, but from my perspective, you know, nothing has very much changed for me. I'm going into public spaces, indoor ones, with a mask on, um, even though the mask mandates have been lifted in my state. Um, I don't think we're out of the woods. Um, I think as you see these cases rising across the globe, everybody here in the United States should be thinking, gee, when is, when is it our turn, our, our turn uh, in this next round? And it's probably close at hand. I can't believe that we're not going to see uh, uh, another wave within the next few weeks or few months. Um, and so, you know, you, you got to figure out how to live with this, not by denying that it exists, that um, it's a serious pandemic. Um, and with some fantasy of going back to 2019, you have to figure out how you're going to re reorient your lives to, to, to keep people safe in your own social circle, but also in the, in the wider communities in which we live. Greg, the, that term lagging indicator makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I mean, it's like how many lives are in that lag? What, how long is the, is the lag? Can you say a little bit? I'm not an epidemiologist, so just that. But so I don't know, a week, two weeks, you know, before somebody who gets infected today, you know, if we have a whole group of people got infected today, you know, we may not see hospitalizations rise up till eight, nine, 10, 12, 14 days later. Those are baked in, right? You know, you didn't prevent those infections, so you can't really affect the trajectory of what's going to happen to them. Um, so if you wait for your hospitals to fill up, you have a backlog of infections um, of unknown magnitude. <laughs> Um, waiting for you two weeks later, right? So, so there, there's some, there's, um, I don't understand why the CDC has done this, you know, and put such an emphasis on hospitalizations. Yes, I know we want to keep hospitals from overflowing and, you know, it's, and um, eradication of, of SARS-CoV-2 is, is not on the table, but to reduce hospitalizations, you have to, you have to cut down the cases. You know, you have to go to the, you go to the tap, right? Um, you go to the tap to keep the tub from overflowing. You don't sort of try to, to, to bail out your tub after the water is at the, at the rim. I, you remember the point in the pandemic when Trump was still president where he said, I mean, he, a lot of times he said things that were very, just strangely true. He said, well, we should just test less and we won't have as much of a pandemic. We won't have as much of a problem. I mean, those words have kind of come back to me. I know I'm simplifying, but it's like when you pull back on the screening apparatus, we don't have a good of a picture of it. I mean, it's, it seems like in some ways we're just living in the, this weird, you know, uh, non-intervention mode that Trump was imagining. And I thought we were, I thought we had firmly rejected that with the last election, frankly. I, I think we have, um, but this limps, limps me back to Paul Farmer's um, 
statement about resignation is a luxury. It's a luxury good, right? And um, in year one, you know, good American liberals and others were like, we're going to pull together, we're going to, you know, set up mutual aid um, networks in our neighborhoods, we're going to help our neighbors, we're going to wear masks all the time. Two years out, it's like, you know, you know, David Lenhart, who's sort of the avatar for this sort of, the you know, I think somebody called him the candide of our generation, like, you know, we're in the best of all possible worlds. And um, this is this is the world we have. And this is the world we have to live in. And it's a world where there's going to be mass death. And sorry, you know, um, uh, letter rip might have been Scott Atlas and Donald Trump's sort of motto. Um, but as you say, in practice, it's becoming awfully similar to what the Biden administration's policy is right now. What are you tracking in terms of the war in Ukraine? It's been hard to get public health information out of that. The Hopkins coronavirus dashboard is frozen, and it's for good reasons, but I, I'll share with you. I mean, I tried to get guests on COVID calls. They had, they've had a terrible pandemic there, and the answer, and I understand the answer. The answer is, why do you want to talk about COVID in the middle of a war? But I want to talk about COVID in the middle of the war. I mean, are you able to get information? No, but it's, you know, it's not rocket science. Infectious diseases love war, right? Think of the, the great pandemic of 1918. It happens to happen during that's, that's what's on my mind. Yeah, totally. So, you know, two million people have fled to to, to Western Europe, to Poland and, and other countries on the border. Um, you know, it's a perfect storm for, for infections. Nobody has the ability or the time or the energy to, to protect themselves if they even could. And they're all dispersing across the 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 region you know the other piece of this is that many russians are leaving russia and going to kazakhstan and georgia and other places they can get get to so this global mass migration that's happening out of this war not just out of ukraine but you know out of russia itself is is you know people are taking covid with them right and it it, it means that um it, it's seeding new outbreaks uh across uh the the rest of the world as people flee from 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 ukraine are there special surveillance tools for that? Or is it back to just every country with their sort of normal public health surveillance? Are there international bodies that do like war refugee pandemic? No, it's very, hard. It's, very, it's very hard to know. Like any conflict setting, it's very hard to understand. You know, it's hard to do epidemiology in the best of circumstances um, because, um, you know, think of the sort of, I mean, in some cases, places in Asia, they did had robust testing and contact tracing programs. In the U.S., we really didn't do very much surveillance on on, on COVID. Um, in the context of a, a conflict zone, um, it's almost impossible to do it. And so, you know, Poland and um, other countries that are receiving refugees right now are, you know, I assume their ministries of health um, are um, thinking about the prospect of seeing a new wave of COVID. Um, coming in from refugees who've been unable to protect themselves from, from from the virus over the past several months. We should probably move towards wrapping up, but I, I had one more question for you, Greg, which is um, how has COVID um, changed your research trajectory, if it has? And I'm particularly, and I guess, I mean, the broader question is how has it changed you, if you're willing to say, but, I, you know, I'm curious if you were moving in some direction that that's kind of shifted your course a little bit in this time. Well, look, I spent most of my life um, outside of academia, um, working to get access to AIDS treatment, TB treatment, HCV treatment, trying to deal with sort of the um, structural violence inherent in how we um, deal with infectious diseases. Um, and, you know, over the past few years, I felt like, you know, 
maybe I've, I'm in activist retirement and I can focus on sort of um, research on substance use and HIV, which I like and I find important. Um, but the pandemic has realized that like the essentials of the rest of my life, the fact that this is not just a scientific or an academic struggle, it's a real life struggle knee deep in politics means that, you know, I'm 58 years old. I don't know how much longer I'll be doing research, but I want to make it count, right? And that is not going to be enumerated in NIH grants or publications. It's in, it's in the ability for me to change the shape of the world. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. I don't want to sort of get in the, the NIH treadmill and run on it for the next, you know, 12, 14, 15 years um, and have, you know, a couple of grants and, and a collection of papers to my name. I want to know I made a difference. Are your colleagues coming with you on that? Some will, some won't. You know, some are ready to go back to normal in, in other ways. Um, you know, we're no different than everybody else, right? Sure. Um, but the nice thing is, you know, being up at Paul's Memorial this weekend, working with um, a group of people on something called the Urgency of Equity Project, I realize there's tons of people who, um, you know, who were on this path um, towards a consequentialist public health Um before the pandemic and her doubled down and said, you know, you know, the legacy of Paul Farmer and, and all the people who fought for sort of the rights of um, the vulnerable and, and those at most risk of disease in this world, um, people are still following that path and I'm just going to stay on the road with them. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls and one of the special episodes in the Restoring Memory series of COVID Calls as we move towards 500 episodes and the launch of the digital archive this week, and I want to thank my guest who's been very generous with time and coming back to visit with me again. Greg Gonzalez, thanks. Just thanks for your time. Thanks for what you're doing. And um, let's keep in touch. Thank you again. Thanks, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. And we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.